Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. We are going to start today with a fact sheet titled AFOs and Footwear for Children with Cerebral Palsy. Currently, there is limited and low-level research evidence on the effectiveness of ankle foot orthosis with children with CP. Patient values and clinical expertise should be the combined main evidential factors that direct goal setting and clinical decision making. The goals and outcomes for children with CP will span the whole aspect of the ICF. The fact sheet reports that some studies have found that AFOs can positively influence the arch of the foot and foot posture, gross motor function, spatial temporal measures, kinematics and kinetics, muscle operating lengths and gait efficiency. Ankle power as calculated by 3D analysis has been found to be reduced in AFOs that restrict ankle motion. This is inevitable and often an acceptable compromise in order to optimize other parameters of gait and functional tasks. Increased internal rotation of the feet may be observed because the effects of the torsions of the long bones are unmasked once pronation is corrected in the AFO. The fact sheet then goes on to describe how to determine the optimal design and alignments. Table one describes the designs and terminology. They outline the SMO, the articulated or hinged AFO, the flexible or spring AFO, and the solid AFO. Table two discusses considerations for bone and joint goals. Some considerations discussed are things like abnormal forces being imposed on the developing skeleton, which can lead to abnormal bone growth and joint deformity, predisposing the child to pain. Another consideration is that arches of the foot and foot posture develop during the first seven years, and during this time, feet are susceptible to deformation. Walking patterns may also influence the development of bones and joints proximal to the foot and ankle. There is also a table of indications and contraindications for AFO design. Table three outlines design considerations for muscle tending goals. Considerations listed include muscle length, strength, tone, and selective control and timing. Consider the triarticular gastrocnemius. If knee extension is required in standing and walking, a non-optimal ankle angle may leave insufficient muscle length available for knee extension. AFOs will need to compensate for weak muscles, 
have optimal alignments for short and stiff muscles and induce optimal muscle action and lengthening when standing and walking. Table three goes on to discuss indications and contraindications related to muscle tendon goals. Table four outlines design considerations for motor control during standing and walking and changing atypical gait patterns. Considerations listed here include, why is the child walking atypically? This may be because of muscle and joint deformity and poor motor control. Goals are often set for improving motor control of standing and walking to achieve optimal standing and walking patterns. These patterns may first be achieved when wearing the AFOs with a transition away from these orthotics with improvement. Motor learning of more typical kinematics and kinetics requires repetitive practice of the activity and reducing the degrees of freedom may help motor learning. For example, fixing the ankle joint in an AFO to learn control of the knee and hip may be helpful. When prescribing AFOs for standing and walking activities, consideration of alignment of body segments is as important as the alignment of joints. Normalizing distal segment alignments will often normalize proximal segment and joint alignments, kinematics, and kinetics. Again, Table 4 then goes on to discuss specific indications and contraindications related to standing, walking, and gait. Finally, Table 5 outlines design goals for activities and participation. Some things to think about here. A variety of footwear and orth orthoses for various activities are needed. The fact sheet states that for recreational activities, use of the orthosis or footwear that allows for the best performance of the activity, as long as all other ICF goals are not compromised or no harm is done. Walking is a common activity and goals for bones, joints, muscles, and development of an optimal walking pattern may depend on the hours of walking in the AFO. Often a compromise needs to be made as to when the AFO is worn and when it is not, and considerations will be different for differing ages. Table 5 again outlines indications and contraindications. I tried to summarize this as best I could, but I feel like this is a really important resource to help you with orthotics and decision making. I know this is an area that can be challenging because we do not have a lot of clear evidence-based practice here. You really need to understand the child and family goals and pair that with the best knowledge we currently have to make your recommendations. I think the table style of this fact sheet can help with your reasoning, and I highly suggest reviewing this specific fact sheet thoroughly. The next fact sheet is actually a super quick one that I'm going to talk about. It's called Autism Current Practice Resources, and it's really just a list of additional resources related to autism with links embedded into the fact sheet. This list is extensive, and I realize you are likely over adding any additional resources to your study repertoire, but I did want to highlight one that I thought was very helpful. There is a resource listed from the National Professional Development Center on ASD. It is a resource with evidence-based practice briefs for 24 identified evidence-based practices. The link is available in the text, and I feel like this would be really helpful to review. Next, we are moving on to body weight supported treadmill training. This fact sheet is short and sweet. It begins by explaining exactly what body weight supported treadmill training is and provides a few websites for therapists to look at for more information and equipment used to carry out the intervention, such as the light gate. 
Evidence varies on body weight supported treadmill training, but the strongest evidence is present in Down syndrome. There is a clinical summary on Down syndrome that we recommend you look at. If I'm remembering correctly, it talks a little bit about it in there. There is limited evidence in children with CP and SCI and also has been used with kids with spina bifida, Guillain-Barre, and TBI. The fact sheet then goes on to describe the different outcome measures that can be used with body weight supported treadmill training. A few that are listed include GMFCS sections E and R, the tug, and gait speed tests, such as the 10 meter walk test. Next, there are some guidelines for the use of body weight supported treadmill training. It states that the frequency should be between two to five days per week, five to 20 minutes per session, 0.5 to three miles per hour, and recommends to load the stance limb in regards to present body weight support. Limitations include that it is not a comprehensive guide for therapists and that we should obtain and review current literature. They provide recommendations on where to find this literature as well. Next, we are moving on to the fact sheet, complementary and alternative medicine. What is it? It begins by explaining the difference between complementary and alternative medicine. Complementary medicine are practices that are used with conventional medicine. Alternative medicine is a group of diverse healing and preventative practices that are not part of traditional or conventional practice. The NIH classifies complementary and alternative medicine into five categories, whole medical systems, mind-body interventions, biologically-based therapies, and energy therapies. Conventional medicine emphasizes evidence-based practice and so the same standard should be applied to complementary and alternative medicine. If no research is available, potential harmful effects may not be identified. The fact sheet then goes on to describe how to evaluate the qualifications of alternative practice. It suggests things like to inquire about the practitioner's credentials, find out if there is a professional organization for the type of practitioner, and asking the child's PCP if they have any recommendations. It states that PTs and healthcare providers should also collaborate with the family to discuss effects of the intervention and to respect families' opinions and wishes while they are still providing the best knowledge possible. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.